Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the CBS Evening News ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, CBS Evening News podcast listeners, I'm Scott McFarland. The 2022 midterm elections are just around the corner, and more than half of the GOP candidates on the federal and statewide ballots are what CBS News classifies as election deniers. So I sat down with my colleague, CBS News senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe, and CBS News election law contributor David Becker to explore the implications of that fact and the impact election denialism will have on the voters who are heading to the polls. Take a listen to this, what we think is an important conversation. Hey, Scott and David, if you're there, I guess we could probably get started. I yeah, let's do it. Um, I think what would help, because we're going to talk about this really, really interesting and somewhat troubling year of election denialism. Probably helps for the expert, David Becker, to explain what an election denier actually is, because it's a pretty powerful term. Yeah, and, and you and your colleagues over at CBS have done such a good job um, of, of defining it as well. I mean, what we've seen is something unprecedented in American history in the aftermath of the 2020 election, despite the fact that this election has withstood out, unprecedented scrutiny. It's been reviewed by over 60 courts. We sit here two years after that election, and there's still not a shred of evidence presented to any court. There have been a variety of people who have claimed that the election was somehow stolen, that uh, the winner of the presidential election, President Biden, somehow was not legitimately elected. That is false. And there are, of course, various levels of this. There are some who've just kind of um, gone along with this and used it when it's convenient. And there are others who have weaponized this election denialism, weaponized and or, I'm sorry, monetized it as well and gotten rich off of it and who have really been incentivized to um, to incite rage about the stolen election. And in some cases, like we saw on January 6th, violence. And there are candidates now all over the country. And again, Scott, you've done great work on this um, from governor's races, uh, Senate races, secretary of state races, attorney general races, even down to the state legislative races, who have really been running on a campaign that where where the election denial is the most prominent feature of that campaign. 
And it's highly probable that at least some of them are going to win election uh, next week or later this week. I want to ask Ed about the politics of this, but first, let me give you the CBS News definition of this, because we've worked painstakingly over the last few months to codify what CBS News considers an election denier. It's one of six things or multiple of these six things. Someone who says the election was stolen in 2020, someone who is perpetuating disproven claims about the 2020 election, somebody who voted to decertify the results on January 6, 2021, somebody who supported that Texas lawsuit to overthrow or overturn other states' electoral votes, somebody who has supported some of the post-2020 audits, or somebody who won't answer the question, is Joe Biden the duly elected president? Somebody who simply says he is president, but won't acknowledge he was duly elected. In some cases, the 308 federal and statewide candidates we've categorized as election deniers check multiple boxes. Some check just one or two, but that's where we get to the definition. But Ed, a lot of them are going to win, right? They are. And, you know, given our broad definition, especially because this, you know, includes Republican sitting Republican lawmakers who are on a ballot again this year who don't dispute the results of their own ballot in 2020. This includes uh, statewide candidates potentially in places like Arizona and Nevada and, um, you know, and a handful of, of Senate candidates who continue to espouse the lies about what may or may not have happened in 2020. It is pretty incredible to see this. And and it and it makes me wonder, David, you know, I can understand. I just in your studying of this and the book you wrote with our colleague, Major Garrett and the work you do on a regular basis, is there a sense that for some who believe this, they believe it the way that people used to believe that the moon landing had been staged mm. or that JFK's assassination was part of a broader conspiracy? And is it fair to think that maybe some are just writing it off that way? Or is it because it goes to the bedrock principles of our democracy that perhaps we shouldn't treat it that way or shouldn't even tolerate somebody who may think of it no differently than those two other things? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really hard to get into the minds of some of these election deniers around the country. I, I think it's very clear. It's going to be hard to quantify, but it's very clear that there's a percentage of them for whom they're true believers. They believe, uh, they believe everything Trump tells them. They live in media bubbles that constantly reinforce these lies. They um, believe the made up claims about the election. Perhaps psychologically, they can't allow themselves to actually see the evidence that documents that the election was secure. But it's also very clear there's a very large percentage, particularly in the top levels and the people who are running for office in particular, political leaders who have kind of embraced election denial, that there's a cynical embrace of that, that many will tell you behind the scenes, oh, I know that's not true. Um, that, but, but I'm, I'm worried I'll lose my job if I don't embrace these ideas. And, um, and in fact, if you listen to Republican members of Congress, like Liz, uh, Liz Cheney, or even Peter Meyer, they, they will, they've had multiple conversations with colleagues that confirm that, that confirm that these people know that the election denialism is false, but they nevertheless are either cynically or fearfully going to ride that wave as long and as far as they can. And the really dangerous part of this is there are things you can legitimately disagree with about in, in terms of policy in our country, but the way we resolve those disputes 
is through the democratic process. This is through the ballot box and our elected representatives. And what they're attacking is the way that we resolve our disputes. And if that falls apart, all that's left is something that's much more chaotic and violent than anything we've ever seen. And of course, that's exactly what happened on January 6th. There are federal judges who are adjudicating these capital riot cases who say in so many words that these baseless election claims gave rise to violence and give rise to future violence or risk giving rise to future violence, which is why this is important. But here's the thing, Ed. We're 22 months later, and for Republicans who were not election deniers, it's caused a lot of them their careers. And I think we're going to see Tuesday night, those who were election deniers may be able to sustain their careers. Yeah. And I mean, if you look, for example, at Republican members of the January 6th committee, the two are leaving over this. Uh, and there's a handful of Democrats on that committee who are retiring, maybe for that or other reasons, and one or two that may lose, maybe not for this, but, you know, their involvement doesn't necessarily help them, which is which is incredible. Um, and you're right, it is really difficult for Republicans. I, the, the, I think of a guy I went to see last week in Rhode Island, a guy named Alan Fung, who's running in the 2nd Congressional District of Rhode Island. He's the former mayor of Cranston. And he very much... Uh, understands reality and says Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. And he says, I, I know that personally, having lost elections myself, that, you know, that is reality and it has to be accepted. And yet he's potentially, if he wins next week, going to be joining uh, an increasingly notable minority of his House Republican colleagues who feel that way and are willing to say they feel that way. Uh, in his part, knowing that that's the only way he can win re-election or get elected to begin with. But what does it say that a growing number of them feel the other way and don't find any consequences whatsoever when they go home from constituents? That's exactly right. I mean, you, you see someone like Fung, who, if he gets elected, he will almost certainly vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House, who has really embraced a lot of these election denial claims. Um, and... Uh, you know, we're, we're going to see, I mean, we, we talked about the possibility election deniers will win. It, there, it, I should say there's a certainty that some of them will win. I mean, there, is, there are Secretary of State candidates in Wyoming, for instance, who are running unopposed, who's an, who's an election denier. An election denier to the degree that his own legislature, dominated by his party, the Republican Party in Wyoming, is seeking to limit the Secretary of State's powers in Wyoming because they're so worried that this guy is so extreme. And similarly, there are Republican candidates for Secretary of State in South Dakota and Indiana. And I know we focus on the battleground states a lot, but these states are also very important who defeated incumbent Secretaries of State, Republican incumbent Secretaries of State at convention um, by embracing election denial. And so this is, this is a very dangerous trend. Um, we've seen it lead to violence on January 6th. And we should be also honest about this, I talk to election officials all over the country. We've seen it lead to threats of violence and a constant stream of harassment and abuse directed at election officials for two years now. And there's no sign that that's letting up. There's quite a spectrum of election denialism. There's ones who can't answer that question or won't answer that question I mentioned earlier. Is Joe Biden the duly elected president? Then there are those who you know, still argue that there were, you know, Hugo Chavez was involved or space satellites from Italy. I mean, there's quite a range here and we're kind of grouping a lot of people in the same category um but the thing i get most often david 
when we bring up this topic, especially on this space <laughs> on Twitter, is what about Stacey Abrams? What about yeah. Stacey Abrams? Yeah. Make the contrast there. Well, I, I think so. One of the things, and Major and I talk about this in our book quite a bit, and as we've been out talking about it, um, it is clear there have been doubts about elections that were not supported by evidence brought up by both parties. And certainly there were doubts about the 2000 and 2004 and 2016 elections brought up by Democrats. Stacey Abrams has still not conceded the 2018 governor's race in Georgia. Um, so we have to admit that there is some uh, some responsibility that goes across the political spectrum. But it's also really important to note, these are very different things. And the responsibility is not 50-50. It is not moral equivalence right here. We're talking about, it might not be 100-0, but it might be 99.9 to 0.1, in the sense that we have never seen a candidate, a losing candidate, lead that effort and turn it into a movement, a movement that raises at least a half a billion dollars while inciting violence and anger for a number of years. Hillary Clinton didn't lead a movement after 2016, John, and didn't support, she conceded election night. She didn't support a, a challenge in, on, on, in the joint session of Congress. John Kerry immediately conceded and did not support a challenge in the joint session of Congress. For the first time ever, we had a president of the United States attempt to corrupt the mechanism of the federal government, the FBI, the DOJ, the military and Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, in order to attempt a coup. There's really no other word for it on the American people and its government. So we have one of these questions, Ed, that I, I wanted to address from, from one of the listeners that the only people talking about this are Democrats in the news media. Um, politically, for Democrats moving into the to Tuesday night, the fight for democracy or the fight against election denialism maybe isn't helping their fortunes. It's not a mobilizing, galvanizing political issue come Tuesday. Well, it is, but it's not the dominant one. And it is, but it's an abstract issue versus, you know, the economy and inflation and you know, concerns about crime or quality of life, which you kind of stare in the face every day if you're going to the grocery store or dropping off the kids or worried about their safety at school or your own when you're commuting into work, you know, that's a, an easier issue for strategists, especially to build campaigns around because it's something that touches people on a far more regular basis. For most Americans, you know, yes, there are concerns about the future of democracy and they can say that in our polling and in others, but you know, the definitions are different for everybody and it isn't necessarily something staring everybody in the face every day uh, unless, you know, you're somebody who you know, works for or, or, or deals every day with a government agency or maybe in some other way feels that their rights are being infringed uh, in a constant and a very apparent way, I think. I think that's part of it. But the president wouldn't be out there giving speeches on this, uh, A, if he didn't think it was a really profoundly important issue that a president should speak on, which it is. And that's about 75, 80 percent of why he's doing it. But do you think, though, do you think the White House has some type of data or, 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 well, that's or surveying next, that shows that, that? Yes. In fact, I think they do that in their polling, they know that it helps gin up Democratic interest and turnout. And, it, and by giving this speech that he did this week, it's kind of a reminder to them to say, hey, get off your derriere, get to the polling site, please, and drag your mother, your coworker, your cousin, you know, whoever with you, because if you don't, 
these Republicans who you don't like and who have said they're going to do these kinds of things or deny reality are going to get elected. And I think what he's trying to do is leave it all on the basketball court and say, I have done everything I can to convince Americans of this. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. And I think, can I, you know, I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on this. I'm also a little bit concerned that this becomes um, politicized to the extent that uh, anything that's done pro-democracy is perceived as something that must be pro-democratic party. And that's that shouldn't be the case. And it's not the case. There are so many Republican candidates. We often don't talk about this for the 308 you talk about, Scott. There are many hundreds who have not done that. And they might not be the majority, by the way, unfortunately, but there's there's many of them. If you look at a state like Georgia, where the governor and the secretary of state beat back primary challengers who denied the election when they did their duty. If you look at some other places around the country where there are um, where there are Republicans who have stood for integrity and they you know, there are legitimate policy differences between them and their Democratic opponents. But they agree on democracy. Um, I, I I'm a little bit worried that this is becoming politicized and almost being used as a political tool in some ways to drive base turnout rather than try to build a larger umbrella consensus. So we have a good comment here from Michael Sterling, who's listening, who says, you know, still waiting to hear what happens to these election deniers and what they say if they win Tuesday, Um, running in the in some cases this under the same election rules they ran under two years ago. In some cases they are. David, what happens uh, November 9th? If one of the if some of the more prominent election deniers lose, do they have the capacity to galvanize a movement the way Donald Trump did? Or Ed, Ed you can tackle that one too if you, if you've got the capacity. Is there anybody who's on the ballot who could lose Tuesday who can galvanize a movement in as a denier? Mark Fincham in Arizona, perhaps the Secretary of State candidate, um, who has built up a, a decent enough following at least in that state that he could continue to cause. Uh, you know, questions to be asked by like-minded Republicans. So that that's certainly one I can think of, uh, and and by that measure as well. If for some reason she doesn't, and the polling suggests right now she would narrowly, what about Carrie Lake in Arizona as well? I mean, that's that's the one that I think that state more than any other is the one that guys like David and and others who monitor this stuff for a living are most uh, intrigued by. Uh, because it, it has potential national ramifications in that it's a presidential battleground, but also because it has drawn so much attention for those that agree with them and those that don't. And so I, I think watching for that, um, you know, certainly would be would be something. Uh, David, the question that Scott had asked, because I think you got booted yeah, there, was are there others out there who could try to build movements similar to Trump? Were they to lose on election night next week. And I suggested Fincham and Lake in Arizona as two examples of people who might be able to continue stoking doubts, even if they lose. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there are places, Arizona and Nevada are both places I'm watching very closely for exactly that, that reason. What, what Trump has shown in the two years since the election is that an elect, being an election denier can be very profitable. Um, and others who have surrounded Trump have found the same thing. There's a lot of money often coming from small dollar donors from the sincerely disappointed supporters of the former president who have been lied to, to the degree that they believe they must donate and they must continue to be angry. And um, it's profitable. It's lining pockets right now. Um, So I absolutely think that a losing candidate might see that as their next step 
um, and refuse to accept the results. And I don't know that it matters whether the races are close or whether it's a battleground state. I think we're going to see this in a few other places because the incentive structure is so out of whack right now that it's very profitable until we start seeing some accountability uh, um, among these people in terms of law enforcement, in terms of disbarments, et cetera. I think we're going to continue to see this. That's the thing that really jumped out at me in your book, The Big Truth, is that eventually, if this proves to be a successful way to approach post-election results, do both parties engage in it? Do others try to engage in it because you don't want to unilaterally disarm or you, you, you may want to copycat what worked for the other yeah. party? I mean, I think, look, there are seeds of this in both political parties. It's much more prevalent in the Republican Party right now. But if you look at the um, first page and a half of that, draft, of that draft executive order that Trump almost signed authorizing the military to seize voting machines in the states, the first page and a half was a quotation from a lawsuit brought by left-leaning activists in a state. We have seen, much, to a much smaller degree, but with some intensity, election denial from left-leaning activists, maybe even kind of extreme left-leaning activists, about the 2016 election claiming voting machines were hacked. We heard that in 2004 in Ohio. And let's be clear, there is no evidence of that. We have extensive evidence that those elections were secure. The Ohio election was decided by 120,000 votes. Uh, John Kerry lost to George Bush in Ohio. It was one state that decided the presidency. In 2016, the races were close. The popular vote was won by the losing candidate. But still, we have no evidence. And I said at the time, Donald Trump actually did win the 2016 election by winning a majority of votes in states that comprised a majority of the Electoral College. And there is a fringe element that hasn't seen that. I mean, it's at some point that fringe element is going to grow because if the incentive structure is su such that that's the only way you can win elections and you start believing that the other side is your mortal enemy, they're not your fellow citizens with whom you disagree, they're your mortal enemy. And if they take power, what will happen is so bad that you have to stop it at all costs. You, you can start justifying some pretty re reprehensible behavior. I think that's exactly what happened on January 6th. Can I ask you, too, one question? Um, there is legislation that the House has passed, that the Senate's working on, that would at least address some of the stopgaps towards the end of the Electoral College process. Uh, it's called the Electoral College Reform Act, I believe, in one of the two chambers. Yeah. What's the status of that legislation? Is that going to get passed in the lame duck? And David is somebody who does this for a living. Uh, is there a discernible difference between them? Would either one be sufficient? Yeah, they're, they're, they're both very close. They're not identical. There's something... And by they, you mean House and Senate versions House and Senate of versions, similar legislation. Yeah. But, they, but they both achieve... Um, they both do something that's really important. And first, we have to be clear. The Constitution does not authorize Congress or the Vice President to change the will of the people because they don't like it. That's not, it's not a second election. It's not a fresh bite at the apple. It is supposed to be a ceremony on January 6th that we already know the outcome of because the electoral votes have already been delivered and certified to the National Archives three weeks earlier. So the Electoral Count Act of 1887 tried to clarify that to some degree. It, it worked to some degree, but it's 150 years old. And so the new bills try to clarify that even further. They make very clear the vice president's role is ceremonial. They make very clear the job is just to count 
the electoral votes that have already been certified. And one new thing that both of the um, versions of the bill do is it raises the threshold to different degrees in, in, the, in the two bills, but it raises the threshold for objection so that one senator and one member of the House can't hijack the entire process. Um, it need, you'll need um, dozens of members in order to do that, depending upon which version of the bill ultimately passes. There's some additional things in the House bill. My personal opinion is they're both very good. They'd both be an important step forward. I'd be happy with either one of them passing. And from what I'm hearing, uh, it, there's, there's a very, very high probability that they will be addressed seriously in the lame duck session, um, probably more likely as part of a larger bill rather than as a standalone. But I think it's still very likely that's going to um, the prospects for that are very strong. So let's see if we can talk about expectations for Tuesday um, in this category of election deniers. First, Ed, there's these two groups that were on the forefront of fighting election denialism. This group of 10 House Republicans who voted for impeachment against the president of their own party, former President Trump. And then there's this group of nine who joined this particularly high-profile January 6th committee. Let's start with the 10 House Republicans who voted for impeachment. Eight of them are gone. Explain what, what, who's left and why. Well, we, we have... Uh... David Valadao, uh, obviously, who is this congressman from the Central Valley of California, um, and he, once again, as he typically does, is facing a um, facing a pretty strong challenge from a Democrat. Uh, various election forecasters think, for a variety of reasons, he may not uh, survive this, but um, you know that 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 remains to be seen, and um, you know. If he goes too, it's it's just another example of somebody taking it on the chin. Um, and again, not necessarily just because of in Trump's impeachment. Um, it, it may have been other factors like the changing nature of his of his of his district. But um, you know that that's to me arguably the, the biggest example. Uh, the only other one who's still out there, if I'm not mistaken, Scott. And the only reason it's not coming to my mind is because you're running all sorts of permutations and computations in my head right now. Mr. Newhouse so, from Washington. Is Mr. Newhouse, right? Thank you. See, I needed that crutch, and that's why I'm glad you're here. Um, because all the others were either primaried out, announced their retirement, um, or are otherwise engaged. And that's really essentially what it is. And, and Newhouse had a primary challenger, right? But survived it. Valadao didn't face a Trump-backed primary challenger and was allowed to hold on. Um, but by many Republicans has already been written off for dead uh, on election night, and yet he may hold on now because of the favorable Republican environment that at least appears to be sweeping parts of the country. But that's uh, the thing. These were two quirky uh, right. races out of 10. It took, it took yeah. like an asterisk <laughs> to yeah. get yeah. these two and, to survive. And, and, and to not, you know, they're from the West Coast, and that, and that I think is also a reflection of, of the fact that uh, you know, the politics out there and, and the politics of Trump play a little differently, not necessarily in his favor. Um, but, you know, yes, it's just quirky. And the January 6th committee, as you mentioned earlier, has nine members, two Republicans, seven Democrats, one Republican retired at the end of this year or will retire at the end of the year. One famously, Liz Cheney, lost her primary. One Democrat retires at the end of the year. Another Democrat faces a competitive election in Virginia, Elaine Loria. We'll see if she prevails or is able to, to save the seat for the Democrats. But the others have safe 
seats, safe Democratic seats. But the casualty list is getting pretty long for people who've taken a stand uh, in support of the 2020 election. I don't know, David, what the implication of that is moving forward. What what lessons maybe other incumbents or candidates are learning from this? I'm not sure if it's unexpected, but this strange result. Yeah, I guess it I, I guess it under I, I guess it depends on how we define the consequences of these activities. I mean, I, 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 Liz Cheney seems to be living her best life right now. I mean, she's, she's, um, she is someone who I would imagine sleeps very well at night. And after she's out of the United States house, she's not going away. She's going to be out there as a leader on a variety of issues and especially on the issues of the integrity of our democracy. And I think what, what, some of these, uh, both the the candidates and former Congress people who are who've been basically chased out of Congress because they wouldn't embrace election denial, or the people who come into Congress riding away of election denial are going to find, is that that short term temporary political power they achieve is not worth the long term corrosion that they're going to have to experience. I mean, there is a. Um, these people are not going to be held up as heroes and the end of this, if they succeed is not good for anybody. Um, but this Cheney is going to go out there. She's going to be very successful, very prominent. She's going to be able to speak whenever she wants to and speak from her heart and from her principles. And I hope that serves as a lesson that there is a, that there is a future for people, even if they're not in Congress to still lead rather than to, you know, kowtow to this toxic um, set of lies being spread by a losing candidate who has not led the Republican Party to victory by any means. They might achieve temporary victory because of certain dynamics, but it is not a majority vote strategy. It is a strategy that's based on a very, very narrow view and a very, very narrow set of base politics. And you, you interviewed Mark Fincham in Arizona. What was your takeaway? What was your, I don't know, what was your sense of it? Oh, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely a true believer in, in, in these falsehoods. Um, and is one of those that can seize on, you know, can make mountains out of molehills in essence. Uh, just believing that certain things must be conspiracy based or were clearly defined to go after, are designed to go after guys like him and Republicans. And, and look, he's unapologetic about it. This is somebody who was on the fringe of his party and, and, and of his uh, legislative caucus to begin with, um, but prevailed in this primary by stoking these uh, differences. And I think the most telling thing about Mark Fincham is for somebody who campaigns on concerns about mail-in ballots and drop boxes, it should be remembered and known widely that this is somebody who had voted for... I think more than 30 years or in more than 30 elections uh, consecutively as somebody who cast a ballot by mail. And when asked why he suddenly no longer believed in doing so, he said, well, there are all the different dif difficulties that have been exposed ever since. And then the last election he voted by mail in was in April. Yeah, that's such a good point. So, so, you know, like, what is this really about then, if, if that's what you're so concerned about? Yeah, and Scott, as you, as you pointed out, I mean, this is a very convenient ideology right now, the election denial. It's, you know, the, the same people weren't complaining in 2016 when we had fewer paper ballots and fewer audits and less judicial scrutiny of the process. Um, 
they only complained when they didn't like the result. And in 2020, all of those members of Congress who objected to the electoral votes on January 6th after the attempted insurrection, um, they were all elected on those very same ballots. And Scott, you've made this point very forcefully before. And we saw the same thing. Members of the Arizona legislature who led efforts to delegitimize the election were elected on those same ballots. Members of the Wisconsin legislature who attempted to delegitimize the vote in Wisconsin were elected on those same ballots. It's all very convenient for them to try to separate that. And even um, even the secretary of state candidate in Arizona, Mark Fincham, has tried to navigate that, I think, somewhat unsuccessfully. So what does this do to polling places? If we've had this hyper-fueled election denialism, coast to coast, in 48 of 50 states, there's a federal or a statewide candidate who is an election denier by our categorization. What does that mean at polling places? What does it mean at ballot boxes that we have people with, you know, guns and camouflage standing guard outside, ready to pounce when the polls close? Does it mean there's going to be crowds gathering in Detroit and Philadelphia and in Phoenix when the polls close? Well, I, I think I think the first thing is we've seen, of course, the episode in Maricopa County, Arizona, where uh, individuals in tactical gear with weapons were videoing and following voters who were attempted to drop off their, their mail ballot in a couple of places. But remarkably, we've had well over 30 million people already vote. And we've actually heard relatively little of that. And uh, that gives me some hope because what the election deniers want, the extremists want, they want us to be scared of voting. They want democracy to fail because people don't believe in it. That's, of course, also what our foreign adversaries uh, want as well. Um, And so it's, it's really important for voters to understand that we have tens of millions of people who are going to vote in complete safety and convenience between now and the end of election, uh, election day on November 8th. What I'm worried is in what happens after 8 p.m. on election day. Um, and I think it's very likely, and I was talking with um, Secretary Benson in Michigan and Secretary Raffensperger in Georgia and Chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, Bill Gates, um, yesterday. And they all have concerns about potential efforts to disrupt ballot counting at facilities after the polls close to engage in kind of riot-like behavior outside of those facilities, or even as we saw in Detroit in 2020, uh, attempt to break into a ballot counting facility and perhaps harm the, the, the election workers um, who incredibly are, I mean, they're their neighbors, they're their fellow citizens who live in the community. Um, that is a concern. But I'll also say election officials seem extremely ready for this. I mean, they have inst- they, they've instituted new security protocols that they didn't do in 2020. Of course, COVID is not as much of an issue in 2022 as it was in 2020. So I think the election officials largely have this handled. But the fact that they have to rely upon law enforcement um, and, and do this work of physical security, which is not part of their core function, is unfortunate. But the main thing is, from the voters' perspective, I don't think voters are going to experience actual intimidation or, or be fearful during the act of voting. I think most voters are going to find, the vast majority are going to find that it's a really convenient, safe process. 
So the risk seems to be after the election when there's this information vacuum in some states, when the results don't come in instantaneously, like they didn't come in instantaneously in 2020. So I'm going to ask you about the impact of that in a minute, David. But, but Ed, you, you were in New York covering some of the races. We know Pennsylvania is another one of those. California, there's some states where these results aren't coming back promptly on election night. No, and that's normal. And I, I think, as David said, we will all be tasked with reminding everybody of that. It's never been quick. It's just never earned the kind of attention it's earned in the post-2016 era. But Pennsylvania is going to have problems. New York State is going to have a slow count because of absentee ballots. And again, because they're going to be closer than anticipated elections, everyone's going to want to wait around for final results probably before really declaring a winner unless it's evident by the early returns that who's really winning. Uh, California traditionally takes weeks uh, to finally settle things because of the just volume that has to be counted and, uh, and how long it can take. And so, you know, like, like David says, like our polling director, uh, Anthony Salvanto likes to say, slow doesn't mean bad. Slow doesn't mean nefarious. Slow and methodical means it's methodical and accurate. And that's okay. We live in an instantaneous gratification society and world and reality. So we think we're always going to get this stuff right away. It's okay that we don't. And yes, there's some fair criticism that suggests maybe we all put too much emphasis on election night. And it should be a series of days worth of coverage as results come in. That's what it is anyway. But, um, you know, that is the day on the calendar on which voting ends and which and on which Results start to get posted, so of course we cover it that way. But just because we schedule television coverage of these results doesn't mean there's going to be a, a clean beginning, middle, and, and, and narrative arc that ends by the time we go off the air. That's never been the case, and uh, we're not pushing for that by any means. It can be exploited, though, right, David? I mean, if you, somebody yeah. pernicious can take advantage of that. Yeah, we, we, look, we all do this for a living. We know how this works. Um, I'm not a professional journalist, but I work in, in the election field. I know how this works, and I want to know who won at 8.01 p.m. Of course, we're all on pins and needles. We all want to see who won. We all have our own personal political interests. That, that's completely understandable. So it's not like the viewers are doing anything wrong to want to know. But there are extremists and election deniers out there, and in particular, candidates who think they're losing. Because a candidate who thinks they're winning doesn't delegitimize their pro the process. They're very happy with the process. But a candidate who thinks they're losing is going to try to exploit that very natural sense of impatience and maybe the anxiety we feel about what might come out of the election and use that to incite us potentially to anger and even to violence. And, and of course, what we'll also see is they'll try to monetize that. They'll try to raise a lot of money on it. Guaranteed, if you hear, an, if you hear a candidate claiming that vote counts should be stopped or there's something wrong when your neighbors and fellow citizens are counting ballots well into the night, the next day, the day after. If you hear someone saying that, realize that that person thinks they're losing. That person thinks they're a loser and they're trying to exploit your natural impatience so that they can make money off of you and get you angry. And that's what we should all be attuned to when that happens. There are going to be, Ed, to, uh, Ed mentioned this, and this is really an important point. There are states we're not used to looking at, like, like New York and California, because in presidential races, we call them very early because the margins are so big. But there are 435 new congressional districts all over the country, and some of them are going to be close. And that includes places in New York and California. 
And California might be going to Thanksgiving to finally count all of its ballots. That's how they do it. And they have a lot of ballots cast in a lot of different ways, including a lot of military voters that where ballots come in late. And if the margins are very close, that's just the way it's got to be. We're going to have to let all those ballots come in, be validated and counted. But we know with almost certainty that there are going to be losing candidates who try to delegitimize that process, just like former President Trump tried to in the early morning hours on Wednesday, November 4th. And again, reiterating what you just said, California might go till Thanksgiving. That's normal. Doesn't mean it's right. We won't have a debate over how quickly a state casts or counts its ballots. Give the poor election folks some more money and manpower mm-hmm. to do it, and perhaps faster, right? That's a whole separate debate. But that's historically normal that it takes that long in a place like California. And you're actually nothing very special. That's, that's a really good point. And, there, and we have to remember some of the reasons it takes so long is because of policies put in place by state legislatures. So, for instance, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and to some degree in Michigan, The legislatures have been begged by election officials of both parties to allow them to start validating those mail ballots as they come in before Election Day, confirming the signatures, confirming the eligibility so that they can load those ballots up in the scanners and be ready to have them counted early. And those legislatures, all Republican majorities, as it happens, have failed to act. So it's almost by design in those places that the ballots are going to take some time to count longer than places like Georgia and Florida, where Republican legislatures in those states have given election officials what they need to count those ballots quickly. I mean, we even see it in Maryland, where Republican candidates running opposed a rule change in the state board of elections that would have allowed them to pre-process mail ballots. And Maryland takes it takes the longest amount of time to start. You can't start counting mail ballots in Maryland until Thursday after the election. You can't even start counting them. So Maryland, we're probably not going to notice that because the, res- the races probably aren't going to be that close. But this is a conscious effort in some cases by individuals who are trying to create that uncertainty, trying to inflate that anxiety that people feel and impatience that people might feel in order to profit from it. Let's give us a few more minutes. And we know some states come back quick now. Florida really changed things after yeah. 2000. Why is it that Florida is now a uh, rapid fire? You know, Florida is a great example of the professionalism that has come to the election administration space in the last two decades. We, we all remember in 2000, well, at least those of us who are old remember in 2000 that the Florida was an international laughingstock. They had legitimate election administration issues, punch card ballots with hanging chads. They had the butterfly ballot that appeared to have confused voters. There were legitimate claims raised by both campaigns, uh, fought fiercely by competent teams of attorneys on both sides, and half the country was unhappy. That was going to happen almost no matter what happened. But the rule of law held the day, and the candidate that had exhausted his remedies and lost the Electoral College immediately conceded and wished his his opponent well. Um, In the two decades since, Florida has really gotten its act together. And it's, and it's an example of what we've seen elsewhere in the country, but it's probably the most impressive example. And that's largely due to the county election officials in those 67 Florida counties, Republicans and Democrats, slightly more Republicans and Democrats, who have really worked to professionalize and, um, and make efficient their process. And to a large degree, the legislature in Florida has listened to them. Uh, there have been some recent laws passed post-2020 
that actually seem to target some of those election officials. They criminalize certain conduct by election officials that definitely should not be criminalized. Um, they put some burdens on election officials that they did not fund. Um, so there are some unfunded mandates. But largely, Florida is a state we should expect to know the results of Florida almost entirely, probably by 10 or 11 p.m. Eastern time. And that's even with the fact that the panhandle of Florida is in central time. So their polls don't close until an hour later. I've always been impressed, guys, by how well coordinated those county election officials are. It's, it's a model of how any county level government should be talking to each other, frankly. I mean, you, you can call one and they know what's going on next door. You can call one and knows what's going on at the other end of the state. I, I cannot think of another state uh, collection of counties that talks to each other that closely, other than maybe law enforcement. Yeah, I think. Uh, and even they're not really talking to each other. They're just sharing information. That's a great point. And, it, and it's there are some very conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats in that group. And I can tell you, I work with them all the time. They couldn't care less about their political differences when it comes to running elections. They are all completely on the same page. I mean, there are a few other states that have that kind of cohesion amongst their county election officials. I'm sorry, Colorado really comes to mind, which does also a very good job with that. But it is a it's a it's a feature of that state that makes it run so smoothly. I mean, we we won't be talking about Florida well into the the night on on Tuesday night because. Florida is likely to be done because the laws in place allow give election officials the resources they need to get those results out as quickly as possible. Last question, Ed. What are you looking for Tuesday night that's below the radar? Ooh, well, it has nothing to do with this space of denialism, quite frankly. Um, that's okay. Uh, well, who wins the mayor's race in Los Angeles is one. Uh, we covered that over the summer, and it's kind of on my list of random ones to watch for. Um, and then who among congressional candidates, Senate and House, tries to pull a Trump and exploit the results? I think David is right. It's less about everything happening up until your polls close. It's more monitoring what could happen after. And it may take a few days for it to bubble up. It could happen right away. And if there's you know, several of these cases, it's going to be really hard and messy to track and it could further erode trust and understanding and belief in the system. And that's really too bad, but we'll be here to cover it. And again, I, I still wonder if in the back of my mind, like I suggested at the beginning, was this a convenient strategy for now? And will people try to move on from it as if it never happened uh, because it helped them win votes and make a living uh, for now? But, you know, if results go their way, do they certainly not care about this kind of stuff anymore? You know, was this a genuine disbelief or was this a a talking point of convenience? And I think we'll we'll start to know that a little more after Tuesday. If you like the CBS Evening News, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.